Blue collar people are some of the grittiest, toughest, bravest human beings on the planet. Every building, bridge, and road was built on the backs of their hard work. Every piece of raw material was mined by their calloused hands. They manufacture our goods and transport them around the world. We see that strong outer shell, but there's more to every person than meets the eye. In this podcast, blue-collar business leaders tell their stories of courage and victory over crushing defeats. That's only possible because of a mental and emotional fortitude and a willingness to ask for help. It's our mission to bring hope to those of us who are strong on the outside, but may be living a life of quiet desperation on the inside. We'll do that by working together to tell the truth about the challenges we face and what it really takes to break through them. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Tragedy to Triumph podcast. I am your host, Mick Carbo, and I'm here with an amazing uh, construction employee here, Steve Frost. He's a, he's a great guy, great family man, and I'm really excited to partner with Steve to help him share his story here. He's got a really impactful story for us today. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks, Mick. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, here, just to get us started, why don't you just take a moment and uh, let us know a little bit about you. Let the audience hear who you are, uh, you know, your, a little bit about your personal and professional background, and then we'll jump into it. Sure. Um, uh, I, I, well, geez, uh, where do I start? You know, that's always the hardest part, but I can tell you where I am professionally. Uh, I ended up going back to school when I was 25. And um, I went to a county college right after high school. So I knew I needed to go to school. I knew I, need, I, knew I needed to keep going and, and trying to learn stuff. But uh, I was overwhelmed with bills and being able to get to and from school. So I, I basically hung it up for a while, went to work, and then went back to school when I was 25. After that, I studied uh, environmental studies and Italian as my major and minor. And there's a reason for that. But um, after my undergrad, I went to graduate school. So I decided to take it all the way to graduate school. I got a master's degree in environmental studies, something that I was passionate about. And then uh, an opportunity opened up in California for me to start a construction safety career. And I, I took advantage of it. I kind of transformed from the environmental arena because I really did enjoy sustainability, taking mm -hmm. uh, waste and making it into something, being efficient about things. It kind of, kind of speaks to how I grew up basically. Uh, and then uh, realizing that, you know, that was, it was difficult at that time to pay the bills with that. So I did work for environmental companies, but uh, I took advantage. Of, I took a OSHA 40 class and the refreshers every year. And the instructor just motivated me to um, really care about the worker in the situation, making sure they had the right training, making sure they had the right PPE. And, and the, the jobs I was in, it was, it was difficult at times to understand what, where I ended up in these positions. Mm -hmm. And then I understood that, you know, hey, if I had a little more training, if I had a little more support, I, I could have been protected in certain situations. So I ended up taking the environmental studies stuff and, and putting it on the back burner and concentrating on uh, worker safety and health. And it really is, you know, EHS, right? Environmental health and safety. It's about the environment and your impact. So I got into a lot of uh, lead construction. I'm a lead AP and I wanted to have that um, as well. I got into the stuff that I didn't really understand. So I took a construction management certification course okay. for a couple of years. And then um, I really started to get credentials like uh, CHST, ASP, CSP. I just kept taking tests so I could be, honestly, so I could be the best resource for the field crew that I could be uh, because that's what they deserve, right? These people that are working out in the field, they, I have the most utmost respect for them. They work the hardest of anyone I've ever seen mm. uh, day in and day out, any kind of weather getting things from uh, someone's design or someone's idea and putting that work into place and creating it uh, to a perfectionist detail, you know, a lot of scrutiny goes into how they build things. It's just, it's amazing. 
yeah. and the way they do it and the situations that they're in. So um, I really, really did enjoy that uh, aspect of it. And, and uh, from there, uh, I kind of made it my passion to be an advocate for worker, worker health and safety, still have the respect for the environment and, and to make sure that, you know, we're in lead, uh, I'm on lead projects. So that's, uh, that's something that I, I kind of keep a close eye on too. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I, I, dude, I've got so much respect for you and your journey. That's why I'm so pumped to have this interview with you and hear about how you got here. Because, man, from, you know, from what I know about you, Steve, and what the audience here is getting ready to find out is that where you are now is is kind of unpredictable. You know, it's kind of unpredictable that you got here from where you came from, and you know that you that you have this honor and respect for these, you know, these folks out in the field, you know, getting, uh, getting dirty in the trenches every day. And, and, you know, you're, you have this knack for teaching them how to be healthy and safe while they're doing so, so that they can get back home to their families every day. It's, it's, it's incredible, man. So I, I'm, I'm really excited to have the audience here, uh, learn a little bit about what the path that you were on before that led you to, to get to where you are today. So would you give us some insight into some of the challenges and the obstacles that you faced coming up? Sure. Um, you know, it really goes back to my childhood, right. And, and to the circumstances that I was raised in, and trying to understand that really didn't happen until I became a father. And mm. it, it blew my mind to say, you know, how the heck could I have been through all this stuff? And I'm looking at my kids saying, thank, you know, thank the good Lord that they don't have to endure or do any of these things that I had to do when I was that age. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a humble guy. I don't really think I'm anything special. It's just the way things were. I tried to make the best out of it, but it isn't the first time I've heard, you know, your background and where you're coming from. I didn't expect you to be where you were today. Uh, and if I yeah. could use that to motivate other people to stay on the path and to work hard and, and to, to never give up, uh, that is really what it comes down to. Um, so, you know, when I was growing up, a little bit of background, when I was growing up, my mother has uh, had mental illness. She went un undiagnosed for a while. She had a nervous breakdown or two. Uh, when I was really young, about five years old, I didn't know any different, right? Uh, too young to know anything. Yeah, at five, and, right? Yeah. So it was in the early 80s. Um, and uh, she had a miscarriage too, like right after me, right after I was born, she had another, she was pregnant again and had a miscarriage. And I don't think she ever came back from that. And my father was not there to support her. He, she basically, a little bit down the line, and she, he, I remember the story where she told me that, you know, I called your dad. My dad is a parole officer in the Bronx, uh, New York. So he was. Yeah. Um, and he just ended up staying at his girlfriend's house. He said for self-preservation reasons, he wasn't coming home again. So wow. that was kind of devastating to my mom. I mean, in your time of need, someone just up and leaves you. And she didn't have the best upbringing either. She didn't have a lot of support. And my brother and sister are older, seven years and five years. Uh, and they're basically the, the way we grew up, it was just about survival. After my mom kind of checked out, she basically didn't get out of bed for 13 years until she, she passed, uh, at, at age 62 from a sedentary lifestyle. Oh man. So, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thanks. Uh, yeah. you know, it was in my, I think it was in my mid twenties, just about right when I met my wife, uh, my mom passed away. I met my, my wife that summer and then this following spring is when she passed away. And that was kind of, you know, it was eye opening because there was so much there that I understood a little better. I was still in survival mode, still working two jobs, going to school, doing what I had to do. No, nobody could tell me anything. Right. I was, yeah. I was invincible. Right. I was a rock. I was always my own lead. Uh, I never ha really had that guidance, but as soon as, as soon as I met my wife, things kind of opened up, but I, and we'll get into that. Um, yeah. So, so let's so let's look at let's look at this. You know, kind of on a on a timeline here. Sure. So if you were, you know, this is so you're you're a you're a young kid, and your dad says, "Okay, I'm not I'm not coming back." How old were you at that time? 
So I, from what I remember, I was about nine years old and I remember having to, uh, having to work odd jobs to kind of support myself. I remember having to go to different friends' houses to find dinner. There was no food in the house. The house was a mess. You know, we, we grew up in this neighborhood, which is really nice neighborhood. And we had one of the worst looking houses on the blocks. It was always that, that shame and the presentation of where we lived and the neighbors, you know, they didn't really help that. So at a young age around nine, uh, I remember at 11, you know, my dad was there kind of, uh, 20 bucks here, 20 bucks there, maybe a bag of groceries left at the end of the block that I would have to go, you know, get because he wasn't allowed around the house. Him, my mother had restraining orders on him for whatever reasons. Uh, it was just a bad situation. When I was 11, I remember I was, I got a hernia from my, uh, my newspaper route from lugging Sunday newspapers around for two miles. Uh, I, I experienced a great amount of pain only to realize that I had, I had ruptured something. Man. Uh, that's how hard I worked. Right. And, what, and then, what were some of the other jobs that you had? You said you worked, you worked a couple of jobs here and there all the time, pretty much. Right. Well, yeah. At, at nine years old, you know, it, and on the East coast, right. Raking leaves, shoveling snow, yep. uh, doing, doing what I had to do five bucks here, 10 bucks there. Uh, it really, and one of the reasons I learned to tie in was that the, the families that took me in were, they, they spoke Italian in their home and, and there was other nationalities. It just stuck with me that they all spoke Italian. So I took that in college as my minor. I mean, they were really on the East coast. I don't know what it was about the people there, but there was a lot of people there that they cared and they saw what was going on and they opened their door. And every few days I'd go back to their house and I'd sit in with, for dinner with them and I'd, I'd have a meal. You know, I didn't really have much school lunch or anything like that. Uh, the, the thing that made it hard, the thing that made it difficult was that I didn't understand what kind of help was available. Right. I was always afraid that if I were to talk to somebody or if I were to say the wrong thing, I'd be taken away to foster care. Yeah. That my house was in a poor living conditions. You know, I grew up with asthma. Um, and that somebody was just going to come and take us or take me because my brother and sister were older. So pretty much uh, when I was around 13, uh, we ended up moving out. And my sister and I, my my sister took guardianship of me when she was 21. I was uh, uh, yeah, around 13, 14 years old. And we moved into an apartment and I started working. My first you know, real jobs on the books were... Wow. Uh, movie theater. I worked stocking shelves. I worked construction. I worked uh, fast food. So basically I'd do that around the clock. If I wasn't working a weekend somewhere, I was working during the week uh, after school somewhere, uh, whoever would give me the more shifts. So let me, let me ask you, let me ask you this, right? Be, before you moved out from, from around nine to that 13 age, I mean, did what, how did that feel like what was the experience like for you i mean were was it scary was it i mean i'm just imagining you trying to make sure that you're not you know letting the cat out of the bag about what's going on at home for fear of going to you know some some sort of home or foster care or something like that what what was that like man it was uh it, it was just the way things were you know it yeah. was survival it was uh, protecting that, getting myself to and from school, elementary school, uh, walking a mile or so there, a mile or so back, carrying my books, any kind of weather, getting home, looking for something to eat, watching TV uh, until I don't know when, you know, there was nobody coming home that was going to cook dinner. And then, yeah, just going out and trying to find things to do. I would mean, I was really outside uh, all the time, you know, yeah. it was, it was just even after the streetlights came on, you know, especially in the summer, I was just out and about out in the neighborhood playing, playing with my toys in the backyard, doing really whatever I wanted uh, and trying to stay out of trouble, which was always that easy because I really didn't have that parental guidance. Right. But, you know, it was it was just the way things were. You know, I just went to school, uh, tried to make some money here and there where I could try to find food, like I said, and, and really. Uh, didn't know much more. If I knew maybe what we're teaching my kids now, how to garden, how to fix things up, how to, you know, clean the house and, and, and take responsibility and be accountable, have a little bit of guidance there. Um, 
like they have. Uh, it would it, it might have been a, a different situation, but honestly, it was just it was just about surviving. I mean, if you, I never really thought of it that way um, from that young age. You know, my mom was around, yeah. but she wasn't she wasn't there. She was there, but she wasn't there. And and it was the sickness. It was the mental illness. Right. That um, I if I could have done better job of recognizing that maybe things would have been different. Maybe I could have been that, that try to say, I, and I did, I tried to save everything when I was 18 and it just didn't work out. You know, it was out of my control. Well, it's a, uh, it's, it's so interesting to hear that your attitude about it was, well, this is, I just need to do what I need to do. Right. This is, this is normal. This is the way that this is the way that it is, you know, and, and some people listening to this might have, a completely different experience of growing up in their childhood. And also at the same time, there's probably some people listening to this who can really relate. So I'm really, again, super grateful that you, you know, you're as courageous and brave as you are to be here to share this story, because I think that it can really, you know, it can really touch somebody's life. So, so yeah. Okay. So you're, you know, you're living life just doing what you need to do to survive and, you know, take care of yourself. And, and at a, at an age where, you know, nobody should really have to, to, to feel that way. Right. And then, so 13 comes around and, and your sister gets guardianship over you and you guys move out to an apartment. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the best thing. Um, getting out of that toxic environment, getting out of that situation with my mom. I mean, it was healthy for me to, to be away from that. Um, a lot of confusion, you know, those early years, there was a lot of confusion of, of, of not only surviving, but why things were the way they were. I didn't yeah. understand, you know, my friends, I, I saw them doing all these things and I was just, you know, I don't know, things transferred from us going to a, having an annual vacation somewhere or to my grandparents' house uh, to, you know, just coming home and complete negligence. Yeah, I guess is the best word. But once I was 14, I had a little bit of better head on my shoulders. I was working a few jobs and I went from that and, and being in a stable house. My sister did a great job of, of providing guidance. You know, she wasn't raising me, but she was making sure, you know, that someone was there and she had her own deal. Right. She was trying to get into school and colleges and have a career of herself. Same thing with my brother. And um, I moved into that apartment and. I just flourished. I, I thrived. I, I, you know, I still worked. So I put clothes on my back and I fed myself and, uh, you know, I cooked and I, I ate out a lot cause I worked a lot. Um, and I, I got on the honor roll in, in, in school and I got my varsity letter my sophomore year. Nice. And so I was in track and field doing stuff like that and, and, uh, really getting so, back so into wait it. Wait a minute, man. So you're, so you're working, you're essentially, you're almost working full time to make sure that you can pay for food and clothes. You go, you're going to school and you're like crushing it in school, getting great grades and you get your varsity letter as a, yeah. as a sophomore in track. Like, I think, you know, that, you know, I've had several of these interviews as I've shared with you. And, and one of the marvelous things about it is, and it just gets me every time how these, how these stories of these kind of tragic circumstances actually turn into something really positive and powerful. You know, you learn some lessons going through life the way that you did, even though it, you know, I'm sure it sucked uh, at some points, but you, you know, you, you, you learned how to take care of yourself. You learned how to be resilient and you learned work ethic and you learned, you know, how to, how to, how to do things right. That's uh, that's exactly right. You know, a lot of that was me going to a, a day job on the weekends and having lunch there and then going to a night job and eating in between. And I just filled my calendar and, and yeah, I had, I had a lot of downtime. I had a lot of friends, uh, being, uh, 14 years old, 15 years old in my own apartment does have its benefits. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I managed to stay out of trouble and I managed to make a, a great deal of friends um, and, and, and do really well. I was out of that toxic environment and I, I really, you know, that survival mode, that hard work, it, it, it just applied to, to being positive and doing things that, that benefited me again, you know, getting good grades and realizing that one day I had to get into college because that's the only way out. Right. Um, mm. 
that for me, knowing the path that my brother and sister are on, yeah, um, I knew I had to do that, and I knew I had to do a good job in school, and it wasn't always that great, but uh, I did a, I did a, I worked really hard to get there, yeah, and to be self disciplined and say, hey, look, you know, there's a time to come inside and do your homework and do all that stuff, and there was nobody there telling me that, right? But if I knew, I knew if if I didn't do that, I wouldn't get a, you know, I didn't do really well in some subjects. Uh, but the ones that I did, I really applied myself to and it made the difference. Yeah, sure. So, so did this just, did this just happen? You just made a decision to look at things through a a positive perspective and, and work hard and, you know, do the right thing. Or did you, did you get help on that from your sister and brother? Like how did, how did all that happen? Uh, honestly, you know, my dad worked three jobs 24 seven. He, he really did. He really, he was a parole officer. Then he, he also cleaned schools like in the, in the South Bronx, I'd go with him some of those times and clean schools with him during the summer. And then he was a security guard too. So he really, unfortunately he didn't deal with things at home because he was going to work all the time. right? Right. His, that was his way of dealing with stuff. Um, but I, I got a little bit of that from him, you know, and I, and we do things that we get a positive return from. Right. Sure. So if I just s- sat around and did nothing, no one's going to come in and hand me anything. So you have to go out there and work for it. And uh, working hard has had a positive feedback loop. I was able to, you know, have new clothes. I was able to dress the way I wanted to. I was able to, to uh, keep in line with the kids that had everything given to them. And at the same time, you know, if, when we were going out and we were hanging out at the mall and stuff, uh, and, and doing the things that kids do. I always had money because I always worked. Sure. And, but then there was those, you know, those Friday nights and those Saturdays where I couldn't participate because I had to go to work. So mm. it's kind of a double-edged sword, but it, it, you know, and, and if you don't do a good job, you're, you're not going to have that forever. So you can't just not show up to work and expect to keep working. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there that want your job and, and I worked hard. I did a good job and that return to me, uh, help me stay focused. And even, you know, I, I'm highly competitive and, and, and now even as a safety professional, it, taking those four and five hour exams and, and trying to do the best and be the best I can kind of translates into where, how I was brought up. And, um, not only that, but now, especially as a safety professional, realizing that the injuries and incidents that happen in the field, if you want people to buy in, if you want people to stay safe, then we have to keep them centered. We have to keep them focused and we have to let them know that, you know, this is a personal deal where you're being safe for yourself. And it's a, uh, you have to address the mental health issues out there and the well-being issues if you want yeah. people to stay safe. Yeah. And that's what it was for me back in the day is that it was just go, 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 go. And then once I realized after that transition, which is the next part of the story, honestly, yeah. because that, that apartment didn't last forever. And I ended up moving back in with my mother. Oh, wow. And oh, so uh, what, my, what happened with the apartment? How come well, it didn't last? I, I guess my sister and brother were at that age where they were moved on to other things. Uh, okay. Uh, college. Right. And um, other, uh, other things. And, and there was a little bit of turmoil there in the apartment complex itself. But basically my dad said, you know, we're not going to, I'm not going to pay the rent anymore. Mm. And, uh, that's one thing that he did help out with. It wasn't that much. It was to me at the time, but, um, he said, you know, you have to move back in with your mom. And then my brother and sister kind of went their separate ways. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I did that. I moved back in. And, uh, my grades took a hit. I try to save the house, save everything, clean up the house. I mean, it was, you, you were what, like a, you were a senior at this point. Yeah. Mid, mid senior year, I would say. Okay. Maybe early on. Um, so now you try, now you kind of get into protector mode. You're going to, you're going to try and save mom and save the house and everything. Yeah. I, I looked at it too, as a way to maybe bring us back into one house, Ooh. if we can make it nice and, 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 and we could, we could maybe all move back in together, have that be our home base. Uh, but my mother was just not having it. She was, she didn't want to live with anybody. She had her time alone uh, and it just, it, again, it created a toxic environment. And, uh, 
and, and things started to go downhill. I started, my grades suffered, everything kind of suffered. I still went to work. Okay. So there wasn't that much interaction. Uh, but I did, you know, I did graduate. And then of course that October, I went to a job where, uh, right after graduation, I went to, someone was outside promoting their business and said, Hey, we'll do tuition reimbursement. So I did that. So I ended up working at a company that had tuition reimbursement. I signed up for County college. So I started going there and then October, as soon as I started to get my legs, uh, and, and, and go to school, my parents sold the house. They divorced. They said, see you later. We're selling the house. They split the money and, and she, my mom went to live in an apartment and became completely sedentary at that time. And then my dad just was doing what he was doing with his, his uh, girlfriend and her son. I did actually live with them for a while. That transition. Okay. Uh, something that I left out was that when I was younger, right around when I, uh, moved out of my house. I lived with my dad and his girlfriend and her son. And we ended up moving, selling my grandparents' house, moving to upstate New York next to her family. And that was a complete disaster. As soon as she got what she wanted moving up there, I mean, she came after me with a knife one time and it was just really toxic. Oh, worse than, yeah. So uh, I ended up moving back down with my mother. Right. So it was, yeah. it was a lot of bouncing around basically since I was 14 and maybe even a little bit earlier than that, I really haven't stayed in one spot for more than two years. And that, that lasted until I was up until about, I was like 38, 40 oh, years old. So just the apartment life and moving around, hopping around, um, it was just, you know, pick up and go. Wow. And that, you know, it has its benefits, but it also is, there's no stability there. That's one thing in my life that I really didn't have was just that stable environment. And that, that was just, and a lot of people who experienced that because of their career and because of their home situation or what, you know, what they do. But, uh, for me, it's just, you know, every two years, every year it was, it was something new. Well, yeah. And I, I think it makes sense to point out that that has an impact, <clears throat> you know, it has a, it has an impact being, you know, moving around all that time and not having that stability. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it kind of got, you know, after after the house was gone, I moved into a room uh, in a house, 75 bucks a week. My dad helped me out with that. And I worked and I worked and I worked and I worked and I went to school. Ooh. And finally, it, it got to a boiling point where the pressures of just, you know, doing what I did, it just uh, it had an effect on me. Right. Yeah. I, I looked inward. I, I didn't see where I was going. I didn't see my future. I was going to school, taking all these classes not knowing where the hell I was going to live or pay insurance or do all this stuff. And, and, and I finally, you know, kind of just, I took a break from everything and I said, you know what? Uh, I need to step back. And I ended up uh, moving in with my sister and my grandmother Okay. in their house and, and really not doing much and really, really just sitting on the front stoop, smoking cigarettes and, uh, just, I had enough, you know, I, things were really, really rough inside internally. Yeah. yeah you know, sure. I started to reflect on what happened when I was younger and where I was going in the future, because now I was totally out. Right. At right. A, 18, 17, I think it was like 17. I was August. So when I was 18, they sold the house. And, uh, after a long, you know, I guess it was three or four months and I finally started to come out of it. And, um, and then I got my own apartment and that was totally on my own. Right. My dad would visit me on the weekends. We go for Chinese food. He was working three jobs. So he would crash on the floor every once in a while. Sure. Uh, and I would go and I would just, I, I actually dropped out of college around that time too, just because I, I just, I couldn't take anymore. I was just done, you know, not being a kid, not knowing where I was going. And yeah, I mean, you were, you were working your tail off and going to school. Right. And, and, you know, there, it didn't seem, it doesn't seem like when I'm listening to you that there was too much to be looking forward to. No, the, there wasn't much support there either, you know, because yeah. I, it was, it's a double-edged sword because I was so resilient when I was younger, everyone's like, Oh yeah, he's fine. Oh, Go yeah. ahead. It yeah. seems got it. Yeah. And, and then it just, it, it, it became too much and I didn't have the tools to cope and to, say, Hey, look, I need to do this for my own health. 
uh, let me, you know, even daily routines, right? It was just go, 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 go. Uh, and things were falling apart all around me. And I finally just, I threw up the white flag and I gave up. And I said, I need to just, I need to level. I need just to, to step away from the three jobs in school and everything else that's going on. The, the house I was living in for 75 bucks, the room I was living in for 75 bucks a week. Right. It just got to me. Um, and uh, so after I moved out of my sisters, I just, I, I really just isolated myself. Mm-hmm. I needed to hit the reset button. I remember it was around 95-ish um, because I remember baseball kind of dried up. And I just, I got rid of all my friends. I didn't, you know, do anything with my friends. I just went to work, Mm. got home, put my money in the closet. I was severely depressed, but I just went to work and kept working. And I didn't really talk to anybody about it. My one buddy, uh, who I haven't talked to in years, he he would pull me out of my house and take me snowboarding, which is one thing I really love to do. Like at least once or twice a week, he would just say, no, take all my stuff and literally pull me out of my house or my apartment and, and, uh, and throw me on the mountain, which was great. So, so tell me a little bit more about that. What was, what was great about that for you? Because, you know, I, I, I will, we'll dig into this a little bit more over the next few minutes here, but you know, what, what I've seen, what's true for me, what's, what I believe is true for most people is that it takes, it takes other people. It takes us, yeah. you know, talking about, whatever it is that depression that, that you're talking about or anxiety, or, you know, if we're having suicidal thoughts or whatever is going on over here, it takes us talking about that to somebody else, whether it be a friend or family member or a, you know, a a professional of some sort. So, so before we, before we get into all of that, what was it, what was it like for you having this buddy of yours being like, come on, Steve, let's, let's get you out of the house. Let's do something fun. Well, it was, uh, it was, it was definitely, you know, much needed. It, I would just sit in the car in the passenger seat of his Toyota pickup and, uh, he just wanted to have fun. He just, he didn't want to go snowboarding by himself. And, and he saw, you know, that I was just basically a hermit in this apartment and I would go to work. You know, what are you doing? All you do is work. Yeah. You don't go out. Let's go out. I'm like, Hey, look, you know, I need to take a break from, you know, being around all these people and, and, and doing this, but, uh, you know, he we pick me up, we'd go, we'd go snowboarding, we'd, he'd drop me off, and then see me in a couple of days. Oh. Uh, it was really awkward for me b- to be around people. Honestly, I didn't want to say anything to anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. Um, yeah. Why? And I think that's totally normal. Like you know, when when I was going through my thing, that I did, I did something real similar. You know, I just isolated, and yeah. it was about you know. Look, I, I put it all on me. I dug myself this hole, and I got to dig myself out of it or climb myself out of it. Right. And, and that's just a vicious cycle and it doesn't, it doesn't work, you know? Yeah, that's, so, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, I was, I got, what brought me out of that was just realizing that first of all, I made it to age 21, which I didn't think I would ever do. <laughs> right. 21, 23. I didn't think yeah. I'd, I'd see that at all with the way things were going uh, when I was growing up. Um, but the thing that brought me out of that, honestly, was Seinfeld and the Yankees. Wow. And I would just watch Seinfeld at seven o'clock and again at 11 and I would you know, go to work. I'd watch and the humor and the, the comedy uh, that would just keep that light on. Right. That would just keep me going. And I'd go to work and I, you know, I do good and meet people there and, and kind of put on that face. Right. Yep. That you had to you can't let people know. Um, and then the Yankees started doing really well and I started going to their games and, uh, I was able to hook up with a couple of my uh, buddies at my new job and we would just, we'd go to work and I'd watch them on TV. And I'll tell you what, there is nothing better than the roar of that crowd. When you're sitting in that crowd, mm. that energy that people have when a great play happens or when they, when they win the game, that, that kind of helped me out. Right. Um, and it was after the whole baseball strike. And that was something that I really loved when I was little, right? Uh, that was something that I went to a game with my dad, and I just I remember very clearly watching Don Mattingly and all these people uh, that I grew up uh, with the posters on my wall and all that stuff, baseball yeah. cards. So that only got me so far, and I started to come out of it on my own. I started to come out of the depression, right? It was undiagnosed. It wasn't treated. I pulled myself up. I remember sitting there just 
bawling on my apartment floor, uh, just just letting it all out and then saying, you know what? I need to restart. I need to hit the reset button. And I'll tell you what, it's not a light switch. It happens slowly over time. Yeah, sure. And you can't just leaps and bounds and everything's okay again. You got to build yourself back up incrementally, making sure that one, hard work, two, faith, knowing that you're doing the right thing, knowing that good things come to being, uh, to just going and, and, and working hard mm-hmm. and then being resilient again to say, you know, I've made it through that childhood. I shouldn't even be where I am. Now I need to be, I need to do more, right? I need to do this yeah. for myself. Yeah. Now there's no one to blame. I'm here by myself. I need to go back to school. I need to Absolutely. still work hard. And then I did. And I made uh, a lot of acquaintances. I, I, I got a job in sales, which helped me uh, pretty good because you, you can't just be like Eeyore out there selling right. stuff. You have to sell it, right? Your energy yeah. and you're looking in the eye and your smile. That's what's going to sell stuff. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I went back to school and I said, you know what, I'm going to finish what I started and I needed the science. So I, I found out about sustainability. I was like, Oh, environmental studies. And then uh, because the people that I interacted with when I was younger and the person that I was working for when I was uh, during this time uh, were, were Italian, I decided I was going to take Italian. Oh, nice. And so I ended up and here's where it gets really awesome because here I am where, and things are, you know, I'm still shifting around, jumping from here to there and moving every two years. But I I went back to school and I took my major and my minor and I met a lot of great people there. And I ended up finding these study abroad programs. And my sister, who was very successful at the time, she was, she was in a glamour magazine uh, because she was killing it out there for MCR Worldcom. Oh, right. When the, when the bubble bust for them, she was getting promoted. So she was doing really well. Uh, and she I said, you know that. what, if you get an A in Italian, I'm going to send you to Italy. So I busted my butt and I got an A in Italian. I bet you and did. I, what's that? I said, I bet you did. Oh yeah. yeah. Forget about it. <laughs> so, um, so I, I did that and uh, there was a study abroad trip basically. So you can go and get credits and study in, in a university there over the summer and, and be immersed in the culture. And it just worked out. I got a scholarship for it. My sister helped me pay the rest of it. And I, I threw some money at it and I ended up doing a, uh, we were there for about six to eight weeks, about three months, actually. We were there in Italy. So I ended up taking these study abroad trips the rest of my collegiate career. I took out a bunch of student loans. Um, and I live, uh, honestly, I lived off those loans as well. Cause the odd jobs weren't cutting it and groceries and insurance and everything else, the, uh, the rent and stuff like that, cars, uh, that all takes money. And, and when you, when you get that from the student loans, like you're not even thinking about when you're 45 and you're still paying that son of a gun back. Yeah. It, it just, it's just, it was needed. Right. And, and, and it's kind of one of those things where I wouldn't be where I am without it. So I was, you know, in an apartment going, commuting to school, taking this. I went to Italy, Costa Rica, the uh, Southwest U.S., and then the Northwest U.S. where I met my wife. And she was part of the students. She was she's about six years younger than me. And I'll tell you what, I saw her. uh, She brought her bag to the van. I ended up uh, getting a scholarship and I drove the van out from New Jersey to Seattle. So I was able to kind of work and, and work some of that off. And, uh, she came to load her bag in the van and I uh, talk about a thunderbolt, right? Yeah. I, I was just the kid that was standing next to me. I, I had a girlfriend at the time and I said, Hey, you know, there goes my relationship with my girlfriend, that girl right there. I said, that's the one. Wow. And, um, and yeah. And then by the time that trip was over, uh, it was after nine 11 and we, we took the trip around the U S the Northwest. We started at British Columbia, went down to dinosaur Utah and back by the time that was trip was over. She was tearing up her plane ticket and she took the ride back with me back to New Jersey. Uh, nice. And we saw so much stuff. So then I took her, I went and I did the study abroad trips again. I took her to back to Costa Rica and I took her to Italy again, but this time, uh, in Italy, I rented an apartment. I stayed there for three months from June to August. Hmm. And so I was getting, I mean, I went to the Vatican and talk about enlightening experiences and seeing all these churches and artwork and just ancient history right there in front of you. It it was truly amazing. And, and then, you know, to look back on how I grew up, you know, string bean sandwiches, 
mm. and, and gravy and, and, and chef by RD cans on the stove trying to heat something soup up once a day. Yeah, man. Uh, it was amazing that I was where I was at. And then I, I met her and, uh, about six months after I graduated on Valentine's day, I, I gave her a call and uh, never looked back. And that was about 15, 16 years ago. Nice. Congrats, man. Yeah. And she straightened my ass out. Yeah. So t- tell, tell <laughs> us about that, man. I think this is, this is, this is part of the, part of the great, you know, story. And, and what I was pointing to a minute ago when I was talking about needing to get out outside help. So how, how did she straighten you out? Tell us about that. Oh, she didn't. She was, she was originally from Queens. Right. And then she moved up to New York and, and she, uh, she had a background and she was tough as nails and, um, she just, she wouldn't tolerate me and she loved me and I loved her and she just wouldn't tolerate my BS. Basically, you know, we, we got together and she felt the same way about me. We moved out to Oregon together the first time trying to get out here. And, um, and then moved back to New Jersey and then got married back in New Jersey and then moved out to California where the job was. Okay. Uh, and then moved to Arizona and then moved back up to Oregon. But she, over time, right. Very patient person, very understanding person. And she just, she was there for me and, but she wouldn't tolerate stuff. Right. So uh, what I think the most important thing that I can actually talk about during this is after being resilient and after experiencing some things to <clears throat> being cognizant of the cycles that repeat themselves throughout the family sure. and breaking those cycle, cycles. Both of my parents were alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was abusive, right? I was raised by the belt. And if I was really bad, I got the belt buckle mm-hmm. uh, and not doing that and breaking that cycle with my kids and being there for my wife and being there for my kids. And she just said, you know, uh, if we're going to start having kids, you're not going to, um, you're not going to drink any more alcohol. Cause I'd go out and I had right. a couple kids first and then I'd come home drunk, uh, dropped off and then wake up in the morning. Like, how did I get here? Yeah. And she says, look, if we're going to be together, it's either you're here or the beer, but you're not having both. Right. Cause I tried moderation. I said, oh, you know, I'll just have a, a couple beers when I get home. It turned into a 20 pack mm. and it was just, you know, it was just in my blood. It wasn't good for me. You know, yeah, nothing yeah. good was coming out of it. And, and like a light switch, I just said, okay, I'm not going to drink anymore. And that's it. I stopped drinking. Nice. I didn't touch it. No wine, no nothing. The closest I get is, is Listerine swishing around in my, <laughs> my mouth. Yeah. Right. Cause it has a little bit of alcohol in it. Uh, but I did it for her. I wasn't willing to do it for myself. Yeah. And I did it for her. I did it for my kids. I stopped smoking cigarettes and she was so patient. I mean, that was the worst experience in my life. My attitude, I didn't know how to, I didn't have any coping skills. And it took me about two to three years to really get off of smoking tobacco and cigarettes. It was really, it was unbelievable how, you know, just the stress relief of saying, okay, things are really bad. Things are real stressful. I'm going to go have a cigarette yeah. and I'll come back to it. Um, and she was patient and I was, I was rude and I was really ornery half the time. And she, she stuck by me. And, and then, you know, now she just, if I, if I, if I go and stray out of the line, if I want to go out and, and, and do something, she just, she, um, like I said, she's an archeologist by trade. She yeah. digs up shit from the past and <laughs> lets me know that, Hey, if you go down this road, it's not going to be with me. Yep. And uh, she's just an absolute wonderful person and total inspiration. And she, she also has a master's degree in education. And she's raising my four kids now in the house. And I'll tell you what, she works harder and, and is under a lot of stress uh, just from doing that. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely commendable about what she what she does. And I try to give her breaks and I try to do things uh, and um, and help her out with what I know about coping with stress and stress management uh, now because I help a lot of workers deal with that. Sure. Um, and I, I've, I've, it's just come full circle where this is it doesn't matter what career you're in. It doesn't matter where you go to work. We're all subject to stress. And if we don't have the tools to cope with it, to understand it, be aware of it, manage it, it's just going to build up and, and, and take us down the rabbit hole. And when you're juggling four kids, a wife, a house, a car, 
something that I never thought I'd have. Uh, we can't afford to be there. You know, yeah, there's no almost, flight. It's just fight. Yeah, man. It's, a, it's almost like a have to to learn those skills. How did how did you learn the coping skills? Did you talk to any kind of therapist along the way? Did you take any kind of training for this? Yeah. I mean, thanks for bringing me back to that part of what she's done for me. She made me get into therapy. Ah, she's like, she, you need to go talk to somebody. And and I, okay, I went through get, a few of them. to a therapist and work this out. Yeah. Yeah. I Don't bring it home with you. Yeah. I'm not your therapist, right? Mm. Go talk to somebody. That's not your wife. That's not a coworker. That's not a, somebody at a bar. Go talk to a professional. And, um, and, and I did. And it, it, it took a few years. Uh, one, I did, I just sat there and talk. I talked, talk, 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 just to get all that stuff out, just to tell my story to somebody and have them listen to it. It was like a weight off my shoulders. And then, yeah. you know, they rationalized it and they gave me some tools, some coping skills. And Hey, if you did this, if you did this, uh, it'll help you. And then, you know, uh, we still moved around a lot from, uh, you know, California to the Bay Area, back to Northern California, Arizona, Oregon. So every time I had to start a new relationship with a therapist. Oh. And finally, it got to a point where uh, my therapist here said, look, uh, you have all the stuff that you're doing. You know what things trigger you. And, you know, unless you start falling back into that spot, uh, you, you really don't need to come here anymore. Um, so, and I, uh, ironically, Mick, honestly, I just talked to my wife yesterday about how I'm going to talk to somebody, uh, start talking to somebody in the new year because nice. yeah, no, it's, it's that, cause she sees the change in me and she says, Hey, you know, you're, 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 you're losing your temper again over stupid stuff. Things are building up. And, um, I think you need to talk to somebody again. And she's absolutely right. She hit the nail on the head. My, and to tell you a quick story, my dad, this year, 2020, oh, Jesus, uh, my dad, after 10 years of not seeing him, after him never meeting my two of my kids, uh, he flies into Portland with pancreatic cancer. Uh, so wow. after, you know, begging him to come out here and even live with me and my kids and everything, he flies out. I take him. I haven't seen him in 10 years. I get to the airport. He's sitting there and, and there. Can't lift his head up, roll him out in a wheelchair. He has his wallet. And this uh, pamphlet uh, envelope, like a manila envelope of his discharge papers from his hospital. Yeah. And he says, uh, I can't go back to my house. His wife was extremely abusive. And um, he says, I can't go back to my house. I need you to take care of me. I'm dying, basically. Mm. And I said, okay, you know, great. Here we go. Uh, what do I do? And the first thing I did was I picked up the phone. I called my EAP number. And I said, look, I, here's the situation. What advice can you give me? Yeah. Here's the power of attorney stuff. Here's the grief counseling. Here's the therapy. You know, everything was basically there because I used my EAP. Nice. Uh, I got him into a, a assisted living. I got him into a nursing home after he went to the hospital. Basically, with COVID and with all this other stuff going on, I was able to to drive him by my house. He saw my kids on the front porch. They all waved to him. Uh, and that's about it. Six weeks later, he passed away from pancreatic cancer. And I had, I was there with him at his bedside, making the decisions that, you know, hey, things aren't working out here. Here's his directive. Here's everything else. And um, and I never really I never really closed that out. I never really went and talked to a therapist about that. But it's kind of burning in me, especially around the holidays and seeing his pictures of when he was yeah. younger and just being like, Hey, you know, I was robbed. I didn't get to see this man. I didn't have a relationship more than, you know, on the phone or he'd send me some money for rent where, you know, I was one month or one check away from being homeless my entire life. Uh, and he was there, he was there for me in those times. And I was there for him in his time. It yeah. did really put a lot of closure on things. Uh, but it's, it's building up and it's affecting me now. And, and, and honestly, I know the tools, right? I need to go talk to somebody yeah. and just let this out and not put the burden on my wife or a coworker or have it manifest in me where I'm, you know, eating my feelings and gained a bunch of weight because that doesn't happen. Um, yeah. uh, and it, it's just that time again, you know, it's just, and it's good. I think it's, it's, for me, it's absolutely wonderful to find somebody that you can talk to 
that you can, you can just complain about the Red Sox if you want to, Sure. or if, you know, if, if, uh, if there's something deeper going on, you can just let it out and there's no judgment. There's no, uh, you know, this person's going to see me on the street and make fun of me. Right. There's none of that. It's absolutely worked for me. This is, this is why, this is why we're here talking right now, Steve. This is, this is the most amazing thing ever, man. What a, what a miracle. Like you, you're literally a miracle, you know, and that, uh, you've been through all that you've been through. You had the parents that you had, you had the, the situations that you went through and, and, and now you have this amazing wife and four beautiful kids and you're, you're like, completely interrupting the, you know, the, um, uh, the way it went for you, you know, you're having, you're having a completely different experience as, uh, as a husband, as a father, as a family man, as a worker, and it's all due to your not sitting around feeling sorry for yourself. You're being willing to actually go and get the help that you need and get the tools that, you know, you can, you can work through yourself so that you can interrupt this generational kind of, you know, trauma in your family. I just think that's so commendable, man. It's, it's amazing. So one of the, one of the things that I heard you say earlier, and we can, we can kind of, you know, wrap it up on, on this point is that, you know, you didn't want to, you didn't want to go to work and have anybody else see you suffering the way that you were suffering. I mean, you were in pain and you were suffering, you know, emotionally and, and, you know, because of all this stuff that you were going through and you felt like you had to go to work and, you know, keep your game face on so that nobody else would, would find out. Right. So what would you say, what would you say is the moral of this story? What would you say to the workers out there on the front lines going through something similar, whether it be addiction issues or depression or anxiety or just stuff not going well at home? What would you say to that person right now? Well, it's really, it's really what I would say to everybody else out there and something that has brought me to this next phase of my career, if you will, is just to be empathetic and understand that when you're talking to somebody, you never know what's going on underneath the surface and and to not to be cruel and and to be nice and and kind to people because you never know what someone's dealing with. And, and, and what you say, it could be absolutely devastating to them. uh, If they, if, if you're the, the last thing, the final straw for them, right? So be kind and be nice to people, treat them the way that you want to be treated uh, be honest. And, uh, I think that's work, what works best for me is just being an open book and being transparent. Uh, because I don't like to, I cannot stuff down my emotions. I cannot, you know, uh, it, it'll build up, it'll manifest itself some way. It'll cause some kind of reaction that will take me out of my, uh, ability to be in control. And that's what alcohol and tobacco did. I want to be in control. So, yeah. Uh, being honest, working hard, never lose your integrity. Uh, one of the biggest challenges is learning to forgive myself and showing vulnerability because, uh, you're only, you can only control yourself. And sometimes there's a lot of stimulus and a lot of stressors that are around you. And, and you, you need to be able to absorb that stuff and process it and repel it. So you're solid and you're whole. So you can be that person, especially if you have kids and a, and a wife at home, uh, you need to be that rock. You need to be the rock, but you also need to be vulnerable enough to know and self-aware enough to know that, hey, uh, I'm drinking more or I'm doing this to self-medicate or I'm doing this unhealthful habit. Um, for me, one of the things that worked for me was exercise. It was getting those endorphins going and working out in the gym and doing all this stuff. That was the absolutely wonderful thing. And again, my wife, you need to get in the gym. You need to talk to somebody. You need a CPAP machine because you can't, you, you're, you stop breathing in your sleep. I had no idea. Uh, woman totally saved my wife, life. Um, you know, all I can say is be self-aware, reach out because the best thing about the EAP system and the best thing about reaching out for somebody and my experience over the years that I've done it is that nobody knows anything. Nobody knows that you made that call. It's completely confidential. Nobody knows that you're going to see a therapist or that you're talking about it. And if they do know, they don't know what the heck you're talking about. Uh, So I, like I said, the talk therapy that helped. And 
the thing when I was younger, I remember sitting there talking to somebody, especially when I was going through the, the custody thing is that every time that person wrote something down, I was afraid I was going to be taken away. And that's the absolutely wrong outlook to have. And I think that when you go in there, you'd be honest, be uh, transparent, talk to somebody, do the things that you, that help you on a daily basis. You know, don't just sit there and maybe drink a six pack in the day, go for a run, do something that will take the place, something that's healthy for you. Because honestly, everything you do is mirrored by somebody else, whether it's kids or a coworker, what you do sets the example for them. And you're creating the memories for those people. So make it a positive memory. Don't make it one of those things that they're traumatized by or they they just draw a negative reaction to it. Like, oh, my dad sits home with a bottle of Heineken every day. So now I'm going to. They don't see that out of me, right? They, yeah. they see me uh, talk about things, get frustrated, talk about things with them, tell them what's going on, why I'm frustrated, and, and processing it that way. I don't keep it bottled up. And uh, I, I try to create that for them and, and let them know that, you know, they're, they're my legacy and how I gauge myself and how I behave totally affects them. I remember my therapist said, um, I told him, I said, I don't know how to be a father. I don't, no one's taught me this stuff. So I did enroll in some par- positive parenting courses, but the, the one therapist that stuck with me and I do it, it's just be there for them, yeah. be present for them and be there with them. And, and, and that's one thing I didn't have, you know, my mom was there, but she wasn't there. She was checked out. Yeah. Uh, and my dad was never around, you know, he was there and now I'm home every day. I'm home every day, eating dinner with my kids and I'm in their business. You know, what are you doing? Who are you texting? Or do you have stuff for school you need help with? You know, all that stuff. And, and then just trying to be that person for my wife, trying to be a selfless in, individual where, uh, when I get home, I'm there to help her because I know she's had a tough day. And, uh, but also knowing that I also have my boundaries. And if I start to start to uh, go outside those lines that I need to take a break and I need to have a mental health check as well. You know, most of all, don't just survive out there, realize what's going on and begin to thrive and thrive in all aspects of your life. Give it 110%. because after seeing my dad pass away, not having a, a great relationship with my mom, there's no go backs, right? I barely see my brother and sister and I can't change that stuff. The time we have is precious and the relationships we have are precious. Don't waste them. Dude, this is, this is so good. This is so good. I, I, again, Steve, I really appreciate you being here and for the listeners out there today, some of you may be thinking, look, I don't, I don't have a wife like Steve's wife, or, you know, I don't have a friend at work, like maybe Steve did, or I don't have a buddy who took me snowboarding or anything like that. Well, listen, let Steve be that person for you here today. Let this interview be what motivates you to get up and to make that call to reach out for help. Because like Steve said, thriving is totally possible for you. Uh, don't, don't sit around feeling sorry for yourself, get up and take action. So, uh, again, Steve, uh, Steve Frost, lady and gentlemen, a, a, uh, a, a walking miracle, you know, somebody who went through hell growing up and, um, you know, didn't, didn't have life, you know, served to him on a, on a silver platter with a silver spoon. And he, and he, he figured it out. He allowed, he allowed himself to be vulnerable and allowed himself to go get the support that he needed to have a thriving life with a, with an amazing family now. So, so Steve, again, man, thank you so much for your, your courage, your vulnerability, your, your bravery to, to, you know, share this story. Cause this is a big risk to take, you know, to, to share of yourself like this. So I thank you and, uh, and our audience thanks you. Thanks, Mick. Uh, most of all, I'm, I'm able to uh, be that resource for people on here on the site as well. They, they all know that they can come to me and talk to me. I will get them to the resources that they need. And it may not be 100, it may not be 300, but those handful of people that come up to me and we have those conversations, it makes all the difference in their life. And it, honestly, there's nothing more rewarding in my career than helping those people out. Oh, dude, you're, you're the man, Steve. So again, if you're listening and you, you don't have somebody out there in your world giving you that kind of support, reach out and we'll, we'll try and find you some help. Everybody have a, an amazing day. 
It's our hope that this story makes a difference for another person. If it helps one person, we believe we've done our work. Consider telling a friend about this podcast. You might just make a difference for them too. Accomplishment Coaching, the world's finest coaches training program. I owe much of the man I am today to the work I've done and the relationships I've built in this community. For anybody out there who wants to start a career as a coach or enhance their skills as a coach, look no further. Transform your life and set yourself up to win in your coaching business at the same time. Find out more at accomplishmentcoaching.com.